All right, I'm going to start right off the bat. I'm going to read our text and uh, pray, and then we'll do a little bit of review after that. After I'm done reviewing, we're going to break down the text a little bit further, and then we'll jump into some application. Uh, So let's read it first in its entirety. So this is that Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day, and I thank you that we are here. I thank you for all that we're able to make it this morning. I pray that you'd be with those who might be traveling or visiting others this morning. Lord, I do thank you again for our freedoms we've experienced and enjoyed in this country. But Lord, now I ask that you would help us as we look at this text and seek to understand it. God, I ask for your spirit to guide and direct uh, each word that is spoken this morning. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of review real quick here. I feel like our church is lopsided this morning. This side is real light. I feel like it's leaning a little bit. I, I'm standing up here going, feeling like I'm going to tip over. Um, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We covered this uh, several weeks ago. Uh, this is the first Luke beatitude, Lucan beatitude. The benefit of the reason, the cause of this blessed state is that yours is currently the kingdom of God. And it's woe in verse 24 is like it. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've received your comfort. Your Messiah has been your riches. Falling, flowing, I'm sorry, from that. If you're poor, many times you're hungry. Blessed are those who are hungry now. For you will be in the future, you shall be in the future satisfied, satiated, filled up, full. It's woe is like it, verse 25a, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be in the future hungry. And then we covered last week, blessed are you who weep now, right now after weeping now. In the future, you will laugh, a laugh of joy, this third beatitude, weeping. And its woe is like it, woe to you who laugh now. For in the future, you will mourn and weep. And now we're going to get into what flows from all of these, or maybe ties them all together, or maybe could be considered the cause of why this is looking the way it is. We find this one, this final beatitude of Luke's. Matthew had more. Luke just shared these. He shares this and says, Blessed are you when people hate you, 
when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And it's woe in verse 26 is like it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now let's get involved here. Let's think about, let's, let's look into this. What's the first thing? This beatitude, this blessed state. What's the first one there? Blessed are you what? what? What's the first one? People hate you. Look this up in the Greek. It means when people hate you. I like it when it works out that way. Just like it sounds. Blessed are you when people hate you. Next one. They what? Exclude you. Ostracize you. Set you apart. They're like, this word has this idea of like fencing you off out of the group. You're You're no longer on the in, you're on the out. Happy, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. Who likes being excluded? Some of you are like, I don't mind that much. <laughs> All you introverts are like, I love it. <laughs> but that's not really what this is talking about, is it? This is a little bit bigger than that, harsher than that. What's the next one? What, what else are they doing to you? Reviling. Insult. This definitely has an in-your-face feel to it. I mean, insulting you, upbraiding you, reproaching you. There's a throwback-in-your-face feel to this one. This is right there in your face. They're saying it to you. What's the next one there? Spurn your name as evil. Spurn is to cast out with words. It, this one could have a little bit more of the feel of when you're not there. And they're talking about you. That person is evil. They, I mean, they're, they're just talking about you like you are the worst thing that's happened to your company there you work, your family, your neighborhood. You're just terrible. And Jesus says, blessed are you when these things are going on. The woe, the woe is like it. Woe are you when all people do what? What's it say? Speak well. Thank you. When all people speak well of you. Right? When people, I kind of like that. I like it when people are saying nice things about it. Who likes that? Who likes this room? People say, they, they, oh, I like that guy. That's a good guy right there. Who likes that when people speak well of you? There's some balance there. I mean, Timothy talks about, Paul talks about that to Timothy that uh, talks about your reputation and how you're going to do things in, in such a way that people have good things to say about you. That's true, but yet Jesus says, woe to you. When, when, when across the board, everybody is like top notch. There's a stipulation that we can see very clearly, a clarification in the blessed portion it's not just, it, it, it's not blessed are you when people hate you because you're a jerk. Is that what it's talking about? 
It's not blessed are you because people spurn your name as evil because you actually are. It's not blessed are you when people revile you and insult you because frankly you're just a rude putz. Is that what it says? No, there's a specification, isn't there? What, what's the specification that you see on account of what? On account of the Son of Man. Not these other things, but and it's not because they won't say those things about you, but the key is the cause is the Son of Man. You've identified yourself with Christ in such a way that people are now saying terrible things about you. In John 15, we try to ask the question, why? Why would people say that? Like if... And I, I've mentioned this a few times, so I'm only going to mention it once right now, just briefly in passing. I can remember when I first became a Christian, one of the things that I used to think in my head, and it was, this was dumb, I admit it. I used to think in my head that, man, if I did everything, if I, I, if I explained Jesus just right, people would love him across the board. There's a little bit of me that still feels that way sometimes. Do you ever feel that way a little bit? Like if I could just, if they could, maybe they're, they're just don't like it because they don't understand it. If I could just explain it, the morality, the faith, the trust, what he's done, the good news of the gospel, pulling all that together. If I could just explain it, just, they, they'd love it. Jesus gives us a fairly good explanation in John 15 as to why that's not going to be. If the world hates you there's something you should know there's a tack up here and i just stabbed myself with it um if the world hates you there's something you should know jesus is telling his followers his disciples it hated me first now i know this is real obvious stuff but i want you to just Soak in some of these thoughts today. Marinate in them, if you will. The world hated Jesus. You start to see the stupidity of my thought process then, don't you? If I could just describe Jesus perfectly. Who would describe Jesus perfectly except for Jesus? And they hated him. He goes on. I love the logic of this. If you were of the world... If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, he says to his disciples, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? Do you see the stupidity of my thought process again? Am I greater than Jesus? That, that I would be able to do this in a way where the world would just love me? Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And there's a logic there. Again, they're going to hate you. The world's going to hate you because it hated me and it hated me because they don't know him. 
We act like Christ, and Christ displays the Father. So, the, And since the world rejected the Father as God, they're going to hate us, period. Now, this has always led me to a particular question in my mind. It's not, I'm not new to this. Who, who's, who's never? You've ne- you got, I've never heard this before. Anybody in here say, like, I've never heard this before? Okay, so everybody's heard this before. Anybody in here go, I have heard this before. So all your hands should be up, right? Because you just said, you've heard this before. If they persecuted him, they ought to be persecuting me. And I don't know about you, but I've had this question that's plagued me most of my life. Why? If this is, I mean, the the logic is pretty straightforward. Jesus said, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you because they hate God. Why am I not being persecuted? Jesus said on, in John 16, he tells his disciples on another occasion, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. I mean, he told his disciples this multiple occasions. More extensive covering of this is in Matthew chapter 10. Starting at verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples again, his followers, all of you can hear this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I love the King James rendering, by the way, because it says harmless as doves, and I like it. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over over to courts. Anybody gone to court because they were a Christian? I have never gone to court because I was a Christian. Some of you like, I've been to court. They will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you. Anybody in here been flogged? In their synagogues, dragged before governors and kings for the sake of Jesus. Anybody have been dragged before governors and kings for the sake of Jesus? Just to bear witness before them and all these others, these Gentiles. You skip down to verse 24 and 25. Jesus continues this to the disciples not above his teacher. Again, he says it here. Disciples not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. What did Jesus go through? Crucifixion, persecution. People hated him. We ought to be saying it'd be enough to be like him. They called the master of the house Beelzebul. They looked at Jesus and said, man, you're like Satan. They did that to him. How much more? More? Will they malign those of his household? Shouldn't we be expecting this? By the way, for the record, this did happen. After, after Christ was crucified and they saw his sufferings, who, who was the first who died? Some of you know this. The first who died for the sake of Christ. I heard somebody said it, Stephen, right? By the way, deacons, he was a deacon. James... 
called James the Great. James, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples. And I'm, now, all these quotes I'm going to be sharing with you came, come from a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an old book, so some of the reading here will sound old. James was led to the place of martyrdom. His accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down to it at his feet to request his pardon. So the accuser of James, seeing the way James was responding to these accusations, fell out on his feet and requested James's pardon, professing himself then to be a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Talk about first day as a Christian. I'm not trying to be silly, but talk about, talk about that. Think about that. Soak in that. Would you have, if called to faith, would you have said, I'm, if you knew the first act of obedience that you were going to have to do as a Christian was you were going to get beheaded, would you have said, yes, I'm in? This guy did. Philip, Philip, one of, the, one of Christ's followers, he labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom at Heliopolis and Phrygia. He was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards was crucified. Matthew, remember Matthew the tax collector? The scene of his labors was Parthia. And Ethiopia, he made it down into Ethiopia, in which latter country, in Ethiopia, he suffered martyrdom, being slain with a halberd. That's like an axe, I believe, with a spike on the end. So one of these young guys would probably know what that is. James the Lust, who was James, the earthly brother of Christ, at the age of 94, beat, stoned by the Jews, and finally had his brains dashed out with a Fuller's club. Sorry, Fuller's. <laughs> I said that, and I could see them over there squirming. The Fuller's club. James. I always love James. What a, what a testimony to the reality of who Christ was, because if you, if you get convinced that your earthly brother was the Messiah, God in the flesh, uh, that's got to be the biggest skeptic that ever walked the planet. But he was convinced when he, Christ was, re- he was, he was not a believer initially. He's a believer after the resurrection. That'd do it to you, wouldn't it? He's resurrected. He sees his brother. He believes it. He believed it to such a degree that this is his end. Matthias. Matthias was the one that was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. Matthias was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, Peter's brother, he was taken and crucified on a cross. Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. The great solemnity of Serapis, their idol. So they're in front of their idol, this idol that they worship. He was speaking out against them and um, his life ended by being dragged to pieces. Peter from all accounts, was supposed to have suffered martyrdom in in Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero, being crucified with his head downward at his own request. Jude, brother of James, was crucified at Edessa. Bartholomew, he was at length cruelly beaten and then crucified by impatient idolaters. 
Thomas, remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, called Didymus? He was martyred being thrust through with a spear. I believe it was in India. He'd made it to India, sharing the gospel. Luke, our writer, oh, am I behind one? Luke is supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by the idolatrous priests of Greece. Simon, the zealot, preached the gospel in Martinia, Africa, and even in Britain. Made it up to Britain. In that country, he was crucified. John, the beloved disciple, he was the only one to escape a violent death, but it was affirmed that he was cast at one point, cast into a cauldron of boiling oil and survived. Barnabas was killed. Don't know how. The first persecution under Nero then ensued. That's before the first real persecution. That was those disciples. I'm, I'm going to give you a little heads up here. I'm going to do this for a little while. We're only to A.D. 67. Christ was crucified just 30 years before this. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs till they expired. In other words, like think arenas, sewn up in skins of wild animals so they'd smell and then put them in a bunch of with a bunch of wild dogs, and that's how they died. Others were dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, then fixed to axle trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate the gardens. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased than diminished the spirit of Christianity, Fox tells us. There was a short reprieve. I want you to keep that word reprieve in mind. The second persecution then ensued under Domitian in 80, the year 80, 81. And a law was made that no Christian once brought before a tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. If you were a Christian and they found out, they said, you're either going to renounce or we're going to kill you. And that was the law of the land. Timothy, during this time, was celebrated disciple of St. Paul, was a bishop of Ephesus, he zealously governed the church till A.D. 97. At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogion, Timothy meeting the procession. So whatever this procession was, Timothy met it in the public square. Severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry. I mean, can you picture that? In the public. This is ridiculous. It's an idol. There's only one God. It so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful manner that he expired of the bruises two days after. Also during this time, there's a, a woman named Symphrosa, and she had seven sons. They were commanded by the emperor to sacrifice to the heathen deities, these seven sons. She was carried to the temple of Hercules, scourged and hung up for some time by the hair of her head. Then being taken down, a large stone was fastened to her neck, and she was thrown into the river where she expired. 
With respect to the sons, they were fastened to seven posts. And being drawn up by pulleys, their limbs were dislocated. These tortures not affecting their resolution. They were martyred by stabbing. All except for the youngest, Eugenius, who was sawn asunder. Phocus, bishop of Pontus, refusing to sacrifice to the god Neptune, was by the immediate order of Trajan cast first into a hot lime kiln and then thrown into a scalding bath till he expired. St. John the Evangelist, not the Johns that we know, but a John that came later, he boldly vindicated the faith of Christ before the emperor for which he was cast into prison and tormented in a most cruel manner. After being dreadfully scourged, he was compelled to hold fire in his hands, and at the same time, papers clipped in oil were put to his sides and set on fire. His flesh was then torn with red-hot pinchers, and at last he was dispatched by being torn to pieces by wild beasts. Trajan, another emperor that succeeded Adrian, continued this third persecution with as much severity as the predecessor. About this time, Alexander... Bishop of Rome, pastor in Rome, with his two deacons, were martyred. As were Quirinius and Hernes with their families. You catch that with their families? Zenon, a Roman nobleman, and about 10,000 other Christians. At the martyrdom of these two individuals, brothers, citizens of Brescia, their torments were so many and their patience so great that this man, Kilos Sirius, a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in a kind of ecstasy, Great is the God of the Christians, for which he was apprehended and suffered a similar fate. Here we have another first-day Christian. After this time, there was another short reprieve. Then the fourth persecution came along with Marcus Aurelius Antonius. The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, and so on upon their points. Others were scourged till their sinews and veins lay bare and afterwards suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised. They were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. This man, Germanicus, a young man, but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beast on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Polycarp, another pastor, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped but was discovered by a child. After feasting the guards... Right? Guards come to get him. Gives him a meal. We apprehend him. He desired an hour of prayer, which they allowed. Which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they were being instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned, and burnt in the marketplace. Twelve other Christians who had been intimate with Polycarp, friends of his, close acquaintances of his, were soon after martyred. The circumstances attending the execution of this venerable old man as they were of no common nature, so it would be injurious to the credit of our professed history of martyrdom to pass over them in silence. In other words, he's saying, this is unique. You've got to hear this one in a little bit more detail. It was observed by the spectators 
that after finishing his prayer at the stake, to which he was only tied but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he would stand immovable, in other words, you don't have to nail me, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. The flames on their kindling, uh, that's a word that means little sticks, guys, encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword when so great a quantity of blood flowed out that it extinguished the fire. He died then. They rekindled the fire. His body, at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile and the request of his friends who wished to give it a Christian burial rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones and as much of his remains as possible and caused them to be decently interred. This young lady, an illustrious Roman lady of a considerable family and the most shining virtues was a devout Christian. She had seven sons whom she had educated with the most exemplary piety. Genuarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. Felix and Philip, two more of her sons, the two next had their brains dashed out with clubs. Silvanus the fourth was murdered by being thrown from a precipice. And the three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, were beheaded. The mother was beheaded with the same sword as the three latter. She watched and knew of all of those deaths, that mom. Justin and six of his companions were apprehended during this time. Being commanded to sacrifice to the pagan idols, they refused and were condemned to be scourged and then beheaded, which sentence was executed with all imaginable severity. There's a place called Lions. The martyrs of Lions were compelled to sit in red hot iron chairs till their flesh broiled. This was inflicted with peculiar severity on Sanctus, already mentioned in some others. Some were sewed up in nets and thrown on the horns of wild bulls and the carcasses of those who died in prison previous to the appointed time of execution were thrown to dogs. The martyrs of lions, according to the best accounts we could obtain, who suffered for the gospel, were 48 in number, and their executions happened in the year of Christ, 177. We've only made it to the year 177. I'm not done, by the way. I'm not doing this just to have you sit there and go, oh, I feel bad. I'm actually doing this to inspire you. To attain. In Revelation, it talks about the blood of the martyrs. Hippopotius and Alexander were celebrated for their great um, friendship and their Christian union with each other, just great friends in Christ, brothers in Christ. Hippopotius was severely beaten and then put to the rack upon which being stretched his flesh was torn with iron hooks. Having borne his torments with incredible patience and unshaken fortitude, he was taken from the rack and beheaded. Valerian and Marcellus, who were nearly related to each other, like that just means a close relation. I think it's a father and a son were imprisoned at Lyons in the year 177 for being Christians. The father was fixed up to the waist in the ground, in which position, after remaining three days, he expired. A.D. 179, the son, Valerian, was beheaded. 
now we're just ready for the fifth persecution, the year 192. There was a short reprieve again. You hear that word reprieve? The fifth persecution was with Severus. Though persecuting malice and rage, or though persecuting malice rage, yet the gospel shone with resplendent brightness. And firm as an impregnable rock withstood the attacks of its boisterous enemies with success. Tertullian, who lived in this age, informs us that if the Christians had collectively withdrawn themselves from the Roman territories, the empire would have been greatly depopulated. In other words, there were a lot of Christians at this point. Reyes had boiled pitch poured upon her head and was then burnt, as was Marcella, her mother. Potomenia, the sister of Reyes, was executed in the same manner as Reyes had been, but uh, Basilides, an officer belonging to the army, in order to attend her execution, became her convert. Perpetua, a married lady of about 22 years, young woman. Those who suffered with her were Felicitas, a married lady, big with child at the time of her being apprehended, Revocatus, a catchment of Carthage and a slave. The names of the other prisoners destined to suffer upon this occasion were these three. On the day appointed for the execution, they were led to the amphitheater. Satyr, Saturinus, Revocatus were ordered to run the gauntlet between the hunters, or such as had the care of the wild beasts. The hunters being drawn up in two ranks, they ran between and were severely lashed as they passed. Felicitous and Perpetual were stripped in order to be thrown to a mad bull, which made his first attack upon Perpetual and stunned her. He then darted at Felicitous and gored her dreadfully, but not killing them. The executioner did that office with a sword. Revocatus and Satyr were destroyed by wild beasts. Saturnus, Saturinus was beheaded. This last person died in prison. These executions were in the year 205, on the eighth day of March. And then we have another reprieve. Do you see a pattern? Persecution, reprieve. Persecution, reprieve. I, I have a lot more. I want to stop on this one here. A young woman of only 16 years of age who beheld this terrible judgment suddenly exclaimed, Oh, an unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Like in her, in her time of being accused, she said, why, 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 would you, why would you take a moment's ease at the expense of an e- a miserable eternity? 16 years old. Optimus, hearing this, called to her, and Denisa, vowing herself to be a Christian, was beheaded by his order soon after. Alexander and Thermachus of Alexandria were apprehended for being Christians and confessing the accusation were beat with staves, torn with hooks, and at length burnt in the fire. And we are informed in a fragment preserved by Eusebius that four female martyrs suffered on the same day, the same place, but not in the same manner, for these were beheaded. 
go down here to the end. Most of the errors which crept into the church at this time, there was another reprieve, and the errors that crept into the church at this time arose from placing human reason in competition with revelation. But the fallacy of such arguments being proved by the most able divines and other people that were able to look at the scriptures and understand what they said, these opinions that they created vanished away like the stars before the sun. And then after that time, the eighth persecution begins in AD 250. We're only at the year 257. Why aren't we being persecuted? And this goes on. It's not like it stops. It goes on. In World War II, there's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, thrown into a concentration camp for being a pastor. He died in that concentration camp. Before, he, before that happened, he had written some books. One of them is called The Cost of Discipleship. He writes this. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Do you see what he's doing there? He's relating it back to what we've already heard. The disciple is not above his master. You're not above your master. That is why Luther. So here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1940s looking back to the 1500s to Luther who also went through different persecutions. He says that is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. One of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession, the statement of faith similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the sufferings of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of His grace. Why not us? There's a couple answers. One that I've considered and contemplated over many years is maybe, maybe we're not doing something we ought to be doing. Anybody else in this room ever wondered that? I see a lot of you shaking your heads. Especially after hearing this. Whether or not that's true, and I think there could be elements of it that are, I believe the reality is we are simply in a time of reprieve. We have enjoyed living in a country. See, because it's not like this everywhere, is it? I know I actually used to bring those Voice of the Martyrs stories of people of different places on the, in this world today being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. But here we are in a country. In fact, today it's perfect. We're celebrating our independence day. We're free. You know that freedom finds its roots. That freedom of religion finds its roots in Christianity. Because Christianity knows you can't dictate, I can't make you be a Christian. And so there needed to be written into the way we operate in this country as those Christians, many of them, fled persecution when they came here. And so they worked into our Constitution. They worked into that, this, this concept. But I'm telling you what, right now, things have shifted. We are not the majority any longer. By every statistical account, we are not 
the majority. And as much as the world that we live in likes to say, no, we believe in a freedom of religion, because it finds its roots in Christianity as the world that we live in, our culture that we live in, moves away from God and takes him out. Jesus told us what's going to happen. You, get, you don't like him. They didn't like me. They're not going to like you. Why aren't we being persecuted? I think we're just, we've enjoyed a time of reprieve. But we may have opportunity to stand in line with a great history of martyrs. And I want to inspire you to get ready for it. I don't know if you picked up on this, but I don't get the idea that these that died for their faith thought, shucks. I was really hoping to get to see my grandkids. I was really hoping to get married and get this done and maybe go through this and get this done and, you know, leave this good here. I get the real sense that they heard the words of Christ and lived them out and they considered it a joy. So my application today is let's prepare. I'll give you a few points here. Prepare. You need to prepare for this. It may not come. I, I, I'm, I'm no future-seeing sort of prophet. I have no idea what tomorrow will bring. But I think it would be ridiculous if we did not at least consider... I mean, it would be ridiculous to not look at the course of history and see, persecu- see it promised, see it happen, see short periods of reprieve. Hey, we've had a long period of reprieve. But we ought not to think in our hearts, this is how it always ought to be. This is not the way of the world. Reprieve is not the way of the world. The way of the world hates Christ. So prepare. Here's our first point of preparation from our text in Luke. Don't crave popularity. Now, if I was talking to a teen group, that would have a certain feel to it. I'm not talking to a teen group. But we still live in a world where I think a lot of us, we'd like to fall into the realm of the popular opinion. Don't crave that. That's what the text says. Jesus says specifically, woe to you when all people speak well of you. If everybody's speaking well of you, who, who else did that happen to? According to this text, who else... Did everybody speak well of in this text? Who is it? Look right there. What does it say? The false prophets. Not the true. J.C. Ryle says this, to be universally popular is is a most unsatisfactory symptom and one of which a minister of Christ should always be afraid. It may well make him doubt whether he is faithfully doing his duty and honestly declaring all the counsel of God. That's exactly what it's had its effect on me. When, when, when we become acceptable and popular, it's, that's what it's done. I've stopped. I mean, some of you said that a minute ago. Maybe we're doing something wrong. It, it ought to, something's not right. As Christians, when everything's going smooth, we should be, instead of going, everything's right, we should be going, something's not right. Because I know the world, what the world is like. 
preparation step number two. Get ready to give an answer. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I mean, you can just hear him echoing his Savior's words. Can't you hear that? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You're ready. You're living a life in such a way they don't have anything real to pin on you other than Jesus. That's it. That's all they got. That's what this text is talking about. You're ready. You're living in such a way that the only thing that they can pin on you possibly is you are living like Christ. And they're going, we hate him. By the way, that put to shame may not be here and now. It may be sometime later. So read your Bible, study it, consider your faith, think about it. Why do you believe this? Why are you going to stick with it? If you're sticking with it because, because God's given you a nice car and a good home and freedoms, and if that's, the, if that's it, if that's the depth of your faith, it's not going to endure this kind of stuff, is it? Notice I didn't say, don't be thankful. You, you be thankful though that we're in reprieve. But if the depth of your faith only goes, goes as far as the good things that you call good, and it doesn't go any deeper than that, you will not stick with it to the end. That's not going to be enough. So maybe you need to be thinking, studying, getting ready. Why? Why would I stick with this? If this is the only reason why I stick with this, that's not a good answer. You're going to stand before somebody that's getting ready to kill you and say, why are you following Jesus? You go, because he blessed me with a good car. I remember this one time that my car wasn't running, and I was praying, and, and God sent a mechanic, and they fixed it, and that was it. That, that's not going to stick it out, is it? That's about that deep. Those are good things, but you need to have the kind of faith that says, why would I just want a, a, a temporary fix I'm looking for eternal joy. That's why I'm following him. This doesn't mean to worry, though, in this trying to be prepared. Jesus says, um, this is a passage I started earlier, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Don't be worried about it. That, that being ready to be, give an answer doesn't mean you're sitting there going, oh, no, what if I don't have a good answer? No, it, it's, it's simply saying... Why am I following Jesus? But don't sit there and be like worried about, man, what, what's going to happen? Don't worry. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. If nothing else, hold on to that idea because you can sit there and go, I'm trusting that the day that somebody says, deny Christ or I'm going to kill you. If I answer right, I'm trusting that the Spirit of God is going to speak through me in that moment. Because I know Matt would say, don't hurt me. But Christ in me, my hope is that the Christ in me will say, you can take me. 
I think as well as a father, I think of some of those stories you read of the ones where they killed the family too. What about the one where the mom and and all the sons died first? I didn't get to it, but there's a story in Fox's Book of Martyrs where a a mom is there and the child is getting ready to be killed and the mom looks at her child and says, don't deny. Endure to the end. Preparation step number three, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by it. A lot of us are astonished. I mean, there's some things that have shifted in this world, haven't they? And become unfriendly. Now, we're not there yet, but there's some things going on in the world where an unfriendliness has come towards Christianity. And many of us, including myself, have been like, what? Where did that come from? I don't understand. Why would I be surprised? I shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Peter says that specifically. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What is this? Where did this come from? This is the natural state of the world. This is the way it normally is. The world normally hates Christians. It could come from anywhere. Jesus tells again in Matthew 10, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Don't think in your mind. Don't even think it. Don't think. You know what you get? Some of you think you think we live in a pretty civilized world. Don't you think in your head that we're so civilized that they would never turn to a point where they're like, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill them. That's foolish to think that because the world's state is to hate Christians and hate Christ because we all represent the Father. Preparation number four. Needed a word in front of that, don't I? Get ready to endure. Think about enduring. Anticipate enduring. Crave endurance. Stick with it. I think we need to start telling us, telling ourselves these things before it even happens. I always think of Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. It's talking about Christ, Christ himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, so, so how... How can I endure? think about Jesus going to the cross? So one of the things I want to think about is Jesus going to the cross so that I won't grow weary. I won't become faint-hearted. And the author of Hebrews says this, and this one has always pierced me deep. In your struggle against sin, have you yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? Are you there yet? 
Well, how, how, how far do we got to go? Have you shed blood yet? No. Okay, then you're not there yet. By the way, enduring doesn't mean we don't run sometimes. Matthew says this, one who endures to the end will be saved. Which, by the way, that's, that's, that's a great phrase to keep in your head. I personally think in my own head that when I'm stand, if I ever get the opportunity to stand as a martyr before Christ, I think that this will be the, the thought that goes through my head. The one who endures to the end will be saved. If I endure close to the end, I don't think. I think that may be a sign that there's not faith there. People without faith might endure for quite a while, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what's going to be going through my head. But understand the rest of this, Matthew 20, 10, 23. When they persecute you in one time, flee to the next. There's nothing, by the way, there's nothing wrong in the enduring. There's room for running. Okay, so in your endurance doesn't mean you might not have to go to Covington. Okay. <laughs> um, finally. Get ready to rejoice. Get ready to rejoice. Just, just start thinking about it that way. We're in reprieve. I'm going to enjoy it as long as it lasts. I think all of you are probably going to do it too. We're going get, to get this. Let's get the most out of it we can. We're in reprieve. Let's enjoy it. Let's have our cookouts, swim in our pools. Relax, read, but read our, read our Bibles. We've got time, uninhibited. I tell you what, I know that all of you are here, but the ones that aren't here, those are the ones I'd want to say if, if they're not here for shallow reasons. I would say, this is the time. to. It's easy now. Let's do it. Do it now. Go to church every chance you get. Fill your head because there may come a time when we can't do it so easily. Get ready to rejoice. A lot of this is about looking at it the right way. I always love this one because this ties Christ back into the Old Testament. Uh, here, and we have Moses here. Notice what it says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. They had an opportunity to have the easy life. But he knew what God was calling him to. Choosing rather be mistreated with the people of God. Like, I'd rather be mistreated with the people of God than have this. Prince of Egypt. Because those are fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. See, we're not stupid as Christians. We're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and rust don't corrupt. Thieves don't break in and steal. Consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The treasures of Egypt. At this, this is before all those pyramids were robbed, right? The treasures of Egypt. Moses looked at it and said, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than all the gold of Egypt. How about this one, Acts 5, 41, the disciples. The very first time, I always love this story. The very first time when we went through the book of Acts, I just, remember, I just love this. First time that they actually get persecuted. For Christ. It tells us that they, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I, 
I, I, I get the sense from this text that those disciples were like, they got beat, they're set loose, and they're looking at each other like, we just got to get beat for Jesus. And they had seen all he had done for them. But they looked at it in a certain way, like, can, can we do that? Can, can we start thinking that way? Maybe the reprieve is almost over. Maybe we get the chance to be counted worthy. See, I, I, this verse bothers me because it goes, maybe I'm not worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. I want to be worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Or a passage in Luke, rejoice on that day. I mean, if nothing else, what it says when people hate you, and they revile you, and they scorn your name as evil, and they exclude you from things, and they're like, we don't like you, we hate you, you're stupid, you're evil, we hate you, you're a hater. We hate you. What do you do? Jesus tells us what to do, right? Did I skip a verse? Not, I don't think I have that one in there again. Our verse, Luke 6, 26. Right? Rejoice in that day, or Luke 6, 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. They did that to the prophets, too. Or 1 Peter 4, 12, the one that I have up here now. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange happening to you. I read that one already, but notice the rest. But rejoice. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Like, what, do, you, do you understand what he's saying here? If, if you get the chance in your lifetime to suffer for the sake of the name, and maybe somebody hits you, something physical, and blood is drawn, you will be able to, in that moment, go, I'm sharing in something Christ went through. He seemed me worthy to, to share in those sufferings. We come to the place where we're beaten. With every blow, we can say, Christ, did, I'm, I'm experiencing what he did for me. I get to experience just a shadow of what he did for me. But you get to do it in pure forgiveness. Christ, on the other hand, taking upon himself your sin and shame as he went to the cross. I know that I've gone long today. Obviously, you saw a bunch of slides. I could have gone longer. We have communion. I know that, like I said, I've gone long. But this is a great opportunity as Paul comes up. Paul's going to lead us through it today. This is a great opportunity as you take that bread today. And I, I think you're probably already thinking this, right? You take that bread today. It's, what's the point of it? To remember his body that was, what's the text say? Remember his body that was what? Broken for you. When he takes the, the cup, when we take that cup, remember the blood that was shed for you. And so we're going to have an opportunity as Paul leads us through this to, to, to take that. And I want you to you hold that. Look at it. Look at that bread. Look at that cup. And maybe today you can begin asking the Lord.
Lord, and I don't have a problem with you saying, Lord, I wouldn't mind having reprieve for the rest of my life. I mean, if we're honest, I think most of us would have to say, living in this reprieve has been pretty nice. I, I wouldn't mind sailing on to the end <laughs> with reprieve. But I hope, I hope in the midst of all of that, I hope that some of these things today may have sparked within you a thought. I mean, you live once. I don't know if I want to get to heaven and go, I made it the whole time in a reprieve. Maybe we're going to get the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. And I hope there's a little bit of you that says, there's a part of me and I don't get it. It's weird. Like, what's wrong with me even thinking this? But well, there's a little bit of you that's going, it's not that I want pain. And I'm a glutton for punishment. Maybe there's a little bit of you that just goes, maybe we might be in a generation that gets to experience the sufferings of Christ. Lord, just help us be ready for it. Just help us be ready for it. I want to endure to the end. Lord, if we get that opportunity, let us make it to the end on account of your name. Paul.